Well, good morning. My name is Joel. I'm the community groups pastor here. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, I love preaching around Christmas. Haley and I are uh, perhaps uh, more zealous for the Christmas season than the average uh, follower of Jesus. I don't know why that is. There's maybe a number of reasons for that. But one of the reasons for us, it was actually our first date. Haley and I's first date was to a Christmas concert. Uh, it was called, it's called Behold the Lamb of God, put on by Andrew Peterson. Can I get a little shout from anybody that's been to that show? Oh, we got a few, woo, okay, okay, all right. One of my missions in life is to raise the number of responses to that question, how many of you have been to behold the Lamb of God. Our first year to go was in 2009. We have not missed a single year since. We streamed it in 2020 because we were absolutely not gonna break the chain. So this is year 14 for us. Uh, Friday night, we get to take our daughter Lainey for the first time, so that's gonna be an adventure. Uh, she is five years old, we'll see how she does. Um, but, uh, and I invite you, okay, I invite you. Every single one of you needs to come to this show with me. If you're not familiar, Andrew Peterson, and put together an album, Behold Lamb of God, that is, tells the story of Christ from the Old Testament, the people of Israel, and their relationship to God, but also their longing for Messiah to come and rescue and redeem. And as, this, as the album goes on, you kind of cross over into the New Testament and the fulfillment of the prophecies concerning Jesus. So Friday night, it's up in College Station. You're gonna have to do a little bit of a drive, but go find a restaurant. You know, I know a bunch of you from, you know, went to A&M, so it's gonna be like a return to return home for you, okay? Um, but I put it on your calendar. Um, and I, as an aside, okay, let me preach at you for a little bit. Um, we desperately need, if you do not have, if you have a Christmas tradition that is not that, I celebrate that. Congratulations, I love it. If you do not have Christmas traditions that you make sure to, to go through every year, you need them. You desperately need them. Here, why do I say that? Do you guys know that the Eastern Orthodox Church, our brothers and sisters in the East, they think of the incarnation as equal, if not more important than the resurrection itself. Why? Because what we celebrate in the incarnation, guys, is that God himself came to dwell with us. God took on flesh and made a home with us, announced peace to us, right? There is no more shocking, counterintuitive revelation than that, and yet, nevertheless, we can't start celebrating it until after the turkey's been carved, okay? Okay, I'm talking, yes, I am talking to you, all of you, like no Christmas until after Thanksgiving people, okay? It is not, it is not on principle that you hold this view. It is just because you're being stubborn, okay? I'm going there, all right? We're doing this. Yeah, I hear the hisses too, okay? Listen, listen, there are, these are, these two holidays, these two celebrations are not on equal playing fields with one another, okay? God come to dwell with man, all right? That's pretty high up there, you got me? All right, and so I encourage you, guys, find the traditions that root you, anchor you in 
this season. Maybe it is a concert, maybe it is an Advent reading. We've got the Advent readings in the table in the lobby on your way out. If you don't have one, get one. If you have a different Advent reading, wonderful, but you need something. Go home this afternoon, put the tree up, okay? You need something to remind you that God, in this season, God has announced peace to you. It is amazing that that should be the case, and yet it is. Look, all kinds, there's plenty of other religions out there that have in their, you know, in their uh, whatever, in their teachings and whatnot, that God, you know, visits, that God makes an announcement to, that the gods, you know, kind of, kind of sneak around and work behind the scenes, but nobody says God became man that he might rescue and redeem. And so we need, I get it, this season, just blink and you will miss it. You desperately need something to remind yourself of that truth in this season. It is incredible. And so I'm very excited to preach a Christmas message to you. Let's, we're gonna open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter one. And if you don't know, Matthew one, one through 17 is the genealogy of Jesus, right? Well, back to my Behold the Lamb of God concert. They're one of the songs um, in that album is uh, kind of this lighthearted, blue, grassy rendition of Matthew's begets, of Matthew's genealogy. Um, and I have made it my mission to memorize every single word and to just like a cheesy goofball that I am, just bebop along to it and sing it in the concert. And we've got several friends that come with us every year uh, that just mock me relentlessly for doing so, and I could not care a single bit less. I just embrace it, I revel in it, okay? So you can only imagine my unadulterated joy when the preaching calendar came around to me and I get to preach to you Matthew's genealogy. Now, you might think that it's a bit odd, right, that we are talking about that today's passage is a genealogy. These are the parts of Scripture that we skip over, right? The book of Numbers, you know, the genealogies. Um, you might think that this particular section is like for all those people that get really, really amped up about Ancestry.com and 23andMe, you know? You're just like, okay, this is a smaller cross-section of the, of the culture, okay? This is not for me. Um, but what would be worse uh, then perhaps preaching on a genealogy would be skipping over the passages in Scripture that we find to be difficult, that we find to be obscure or confusing, because if we believe that every word is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, uh, correction, reproof, training, and righteousness, then we can't skip over. It would be odd if we started in verse 18. Okay, so here we go. We're gonna read Matthew's genealogy and I would invite you all to stand just as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's words. Let's stand together. We're gonna read Matthew chapter one, verses one through 17. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashan. Nashan fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse. 
and Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Amon. Amon fathered Josiah. And Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abiad. Abiad fathered Eliakim. Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Achim. Achim fathered Eliad. Eliad fathered Eleazar. Eleazar fathered Mathen. Mathen fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And so what we have, what Matthew first wants us to know is exactly how very Jewish Jesus is. And that may come as no surprise to you. And yet Matthew, of all the four gospels, has by far the most Jewish influence. In fact, Matthew uh, has far and above the most Old Testament quotations, direct Old Testament quotations of prophecy that Matthew explicitly wants you to know Jesus is fulfilling this thing that the prophet said, that the psalmist said. He's very intentional about that. Many scholars actually think that Matthew even broke his book into five different sections to mimic the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Torah or the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Not that each specific section of Matthew like matches up in any unique way, but there's an artistry there. Matthew is trying to imitate or emulate that pattern. The way that we know that is there are five significant teaching sections of Jesus in Matthew. The first one, five through seven, we know it, the Sermon on the Mount. Then there's three uh, key teachings of Jesus on the kingdom of God in chapter 10 and chapter 13 and chapter 18. And then in chapter 24 and 25, we get a very special teaching called the Olivet Discourse. Jesus up on the Mount of Olives, looking out over the Temple Mount, prophesying the inevitable destruction of the temple in a very difficult time of trial and tribulation for the people of God. And what happens is Matthew clues us in to this division by concluding every section with the phrase, when Jesus finished saying these things. And so there's this artistry. I love discovering artistry and structure and form in the gospels that were being clued into something. And here, even in the very first verse, Matthew wants to turn our attention to Jesus's lineage. He is a son of David, son of of Abraham, two of the biggest names in the history of the people of Israel. And you might be saying to yourself, so what? 
Like, why does it matter that Jesus specifically is a son of Abraham, son of David? Okay, I mean, that's great, and I, those are recognizable names, but why should I care? Okay, that's fair. We need to remind ourselves, if we wanna answer that question, we need to remind ourselves of the whole story of scripture from Genesis up to this point. We're doing this, are you ready? Okay, so from the very beginning, God, in his grace and mercy to his creation, chooses to delegate responsibility and to partner with his created beings, the image bearers of God. We we named them Adam and Eve. Okay, we got Adam and Eve in the first chapters of Genesis. He chooses to delegate responsibility to them in the cultivation of the garden. He wants them to cause it to flourish and to be a blessing to all of creation out to the ends of the earth. And then we fast forward and everything goes terribly wrong. And by Genesis 9, we've got Noah and his family and God is reiterating that covenant with Noah. He says, I do, I'm, you're, we're still gonna, I'm still gonna bless you. We're still gonna, we're still gonna do this. You're still my people. And, and after three chapters later in Genesis 12, we have that blessing in a covenant relationship, big, big Bible word there, covenant relationship, an arrangement between God and this unique family, Abraham's family. We've got a people of God and God promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I am going to settle you in a land that is going to be your own. I will give you offspring more than you could possibly count and you will be a, I will bless you and you, Abraham, will be a blessing to all the families of the world, okay? Keep fast forwarding all the way into 2 Samuel and this little family of Abraham has grown up into a nation, the people of Israel. And God renews this covenant with this people's king, this people's top dog, King David. In 2 Samuel 7, he says, David, a descendant of yours will sit on your throne forever, unbroken, okay? And when you go, wow, this is amazing. And so if you know anything about the people of Israel, if you read any of the Old Testament, then you know that it is not because of some unique worthiness or track record on the part of the people of Israel that God has chosen them, right? We've read the Old Testament. Doesn't go well for them very often by their own decision-making, right? But God, not because of their performance, but in spite of their performance, persistently, relentlessly commits himself to this people. Now, it can't always be this way, though. Okay, we, all of these representatives, Noah, Abraham, David, they just keep blowing it, okay? Their commission, their calling, their role and function. And so at some point, we must have, we must have a faithful representative to stand before God on behalf of the people of God. Old Testament referred to this as an anointed one or a Messiah is the Hebrew word we're familiar with. In the New Testament, that word is the Christ. Sound familiar? So we need Jesus to stand in as our faithful representative to the Father. All throughout the Old Testament, we know we need an anointed one. We know we need a son of Abraham, son of David. 
And at this point, you might be saying like, well, that's all very well and good. I'm very happy that Jesus is standing in as the representative, but that kind of takes me out of the picture, doesn't it? Okay, well, I love that it is Jesus's righteousness, faithfulness, track record that I get to lean on myself as my representative, but that also means that I don't have much of an active role in the, in the situation, right? Well, at that point, we would have to go back to this genealogy of Matthew and say, actually, I don't think that that seems to be the case. We're looking, any good genealogy, we're not just looking, guys, for the way that the pattern follows. What we're trying to do is we're trying to see where it breaks. Where does the pattern divert and what does that say? And so one of the breaks in this pattern that we're gonna look at next is the phrase, by Tamar, by Rahab, by Ruth. Any good genealogy in Matthew's day or today would be sure to focus on the best and the brightest, right? The top dogs, the A-list, the celebrities, man, the go-getters. We want to know who is this Jesus? What has he, what kind of, uh, you know, renown has he come from? You know, I have been uh, this past week, I have had my eyes glued on the FIFA World Cup. Any World Cup fans out there? All right, now I'm talking. Um, it has been so fun. We got our, our team, America's team, the U.S. men's national team, is, it was a very exciting squad. Okay, yesterday I was like, uh, as soon as I got home, we, went, we ran a 5K in the morning. As soon as I got home, I was all eyes on the TV. Uh, I'm sure Haley has a video of me screaming at the television multiple times when the ball just would not, from the eighth minute on, this ball just would not quite get in. We could not quite get a break against Nose. But this is like this young upstart team, one of the most talented teams that the U.S. have ever had, and it's been such a blast to watch them try to break through after not actually qualifying four years ago, and one of our forwards' names is Timothy Weah, and every time the commentators, the announcers, the talking heads talk about Timothy Weah, they say, Timothy Weah, son of George Weah. Now, uh, George Weah, if you are not a soccer uh, fan or aficionado, that George Weah is soccer greatness. Okay, he is the current sitting president of Liberia, fun fact, if you, in case you know, did not know. Um, he is also a very accomplished footballer. He played for AC Milan, a very storied program in a very storied league in Italy. Um, he was the only African soccer player to ever receive an award called the Ballon d'Or. It's like a, basically an MVP of the world uh, for that year, if you are not familiar. And it's just dominated by European players. And then George Weah comes in uh, for his club and his country. And what I want you to realize about this, what I want to point out about this, is that if Timothy Weah's dad, George Weah, is a seventh grade chemist, you know, science teacher in Baltimore with no previous soccer experience, they don't mention him quite as often, do they? No, they do not. They want you to know this guy has got pedigree. This guy's got potential, man. This guy's got pizzazz. You ought to watch him when you are watching this game to see if he is like his father, okay? Matthew's genealogy, by stark contrast, when they want you to know Jesus is the son of, and it breaks that pattern, it wants to draw our attention, 
the men and women that they point out, no potential, no pedigree, no pizzazz. Okay, look who we've got. In verse three, we have uh, a woman, Tamar, whose father-in-law twice over, by the way, slept with her out of wedlock. Okay, so that's not off to a great start. We go down to verse five. We have another woman, potentially of ill repute. We're not 100% sure in Rahab, running a house of ill repute in the city of Jericho when the Israelites come to town. That's not so great. And then we have a Moabite woman, Ruth, a Moabitess. Uh, Moab, by the way, no friend of the Israelites. When the Israelites came into the promised land, the king of Moab, uh, Moab, Balak, tried to curse them, okay? So they're not spending a lot of time together, neighbors, okay? Not a, not a friendly coexistence or relationship that they have with one another. Um, and then we've got Bathsheba, who is not even mentioned, actually. It, what's mentioned is by Uriah's wife, in verse six, Matthew is explicitly reminding us that David called this woman to him, slept with her, and then had her husband murdered to cover up his sin. Okay, so if we are looking at the exceptions, if we want pizzazz, potential, pedigree, this is not really how we go about ginning up a following for ourselves, is it? And it's not on the fault of these women. It's actually, uh, their character is actually generally pretty solid. As far as we know from the biblical record, it's just their status is not so great. This is not how we, uh, this is not how we build a movement. In fact, even the first few men of this account, uh, the first five generations are not even the firstborn. Judah uh, is fourth, Jacob second, et cetera, et cetera, right? So why why all of the, why, why are these the exceptions? Because God uses the weak, scare quotes intentional, weak in the eyes of the world to accomplish his purposes. This is what Matthew wants us to know here. You may feel similarly, like you have nothing to offer. You may feel like a disappointment, an outsider, a nobody, never going to amount to a hill of beans. People may tell you this, you may tell yourself this. Right? Uh, do we carry family of origin shame around with us? Okay? What do you think, how do we feel like Judah and Tamar were feeling at the family reunion each year? Not so great. Okay, but Matthew has good news for you because those are exactly the kinds of people that God places on the bleeding edge, the very center of what he is doing. So you may think of yourself as a lesser than, least, leaster, leastest of all, right? But you are, if that is the case, even if that were more the case, that is exactly the kind of person that God places right in the midst of his kingdom agenda. Very good news for us today. So that's wonderful, Joel, but uh, I may even be able to embrace that and believe that on my best day. But what do we do with that truth on our worst day? For that, let's take a look at another uh, exception to our little family tree, the phrase, and his brothers. Now, Matthew only uses this Two times, 
First, in verse two, Judah and his brothers. Second, in verse 11, Jeconiah and his brothers. Now, I know Judah, but who is this Jeconiah guy? And when we think about the Jewish people, you might hear the phrase, lion of the tribe of Judah, Judah and his kin. You know, these are, we can hardly think about Israel before, without thinking about Judah. We can hardly think about Israel without thinking about the 12 tribes of Israel, okay? And so when in the Old Testament record, we have the people of Israel, Judah and his brothers, going down into Egypt after their brother Joseph, remember, in the end of Genesis, and then many years later, coming out the 12 tribes, Judah and his brothers, in the Exodus event. Now, there is no more significant event in the history of Israel than the Exodus. It is when God's people knew that they were top dogs. It is when they knew that God was on their side. It was when they were sure that he was more powerful than all of the other nation's gods, even Pharaoh himself. Man, this was the mountaintop. This was the pinnacle. This was the zenith of their existence. Awesome. And yet, here we've got that, we've got that picture in verse two paired with Jeconiah in verse 11. Book ended with Jeconiah and his brothers. Now, who is this guy? He was the king of Judah when Babylon came. He was the king of Judah when Nebuchadnezzar and his armies wiped Israel from the face of the earth, hauled them off into exile. He was so evil that the prophet Jeremiah pronounces a curse on him and his entire household, right? Jeconiah and his brothers. That is how bad it got in Israel for the people of Israel that they were disciplined with exile. This is the low point, the darkest hour, the rock bottom for God's people. It would appear to any casual observer that they had been completely forgotten, completely abandoned by their God. In fact, they say that over and over again in their Psalms that are written during the time of exile. They say, oh Lord, Will you forsake us forever? Is your arm not long enough to save? It was not good. The line of kings that represented them to God, before God, that represented the people, was quite literally thrown into the dust. Their hopes quite literally dashed on the rocks, apparently, never to rise again. But what Matthew is trying to say to us in bookending Exodus and exile is to say at no point, at no point had God ever left them or abandoned them. He was with them at their highest day, on their best day, and he was with them on their worst day. He uses this high point, low point to, is, uh, to um, emphasize, excuse me, 
that Israel, that God's plan through Israel for Israel was moving forward irrespective of their behavior, irrespective of what any of the circumstances around them might suggest. He was with them. Okay, so perhaps you feel forgotten by God. Maybe there is an area of your life where you are asking God, have you forsaken me forever? Matthew has a great message for you, a great reminder for us today that at no point have God's plans for you, his good intentions for you been thwarted, not once. Matthew opens his gospel with this statement, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And now your Bible may read it ever so slightly differently. You might have uh, a book of the generations of, or a book of the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, In the Greek, the phrase, I don't love doing this, but the Greek phrase for that is actually biblios geneesos, geneseos, excuse me. Um, And it literally, like if we were to translate it in a very clunky, very wooden way, you could get away with saying the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ. Now that would be an odd way to say that. That would be an interesting way to say that. Kind of catch our attention, wouldn't it? That same phrase is found in Genesis chapter two, when we are being told about the generations of Adam. So in Genesis, we've got this story of God making creation, God creating his world. And now in Matthew, we've got Matthew drawing our attention to that exact same phrase from Genesis two, the book of Genesis of Jesus. What is being said? That God was establishing new creation in the person and the coming of Jesus. That, you know, in the beginning, he is with us. He is with us even still. And where are my perspectives, people? We know in the Great Commission, it says, I am with you even to the end of the earth. And so more of that artistry, Matthew opening and closing his gospel the beginning of the work of Jesus, the end to the ends of the earth. Jesus, God is with us in the person of Jesus, with his people from beginning to end. God's been working towards the fulfillment of this plan, guys, for literally thousands of years. We've got 42 generations here just to get from Abraham to Jesus. It's a very long time. And yet you and I, don't we, so often finds ourselves stuck in the tension and the waiting in our own lives. I mean, we get all wrapped around the axle just waiting for our kids' baseball season to end, just waiting for that special someone to make that move, you know? Is that ever going to happen? We're just waiting. Who is our next senior pastor gonna be? And we get awfully peaceless, don't we, in the meantime? Matthew's message to us today is that at no point have God's plans for us been thwarted, that he is with us from beginning 
to end. And so I think what God is asking us, how God is asking us to respond today in obedience is to cultivate peace in our hearts, knowing that he is good, knowing that he can be trusted, knowing that he is at work in the inner workings, the circumstances of our lives, even if or when we can't see it. Whether you find yourself in a season of despair or delight, Maybe, maybe you're David, maybe you are crushing it, maybe you are vanquishing enemies, strumming that harp, just going, he lay me beside quiet waters and anoints my head with oil. Man, I'm excited for you. That is great, okay? Maybe you're a little more like Jeconiah today. Maybe you feel the consequences of past actions just coming crashing down around you. Maybe you find yourself being hauled off into circumstances that you would not, could not have foreseen. Matthew's message is the same. We are still followers of Jesus. Because of that, he is our representative to God. It is his credential, not our own. Despite all of all of our weaknesses, our lack of pedigree, our brokenness, our rebellion against us, against him, he continually commits himself to us. And never at any point will he leave us. He is with us from beginning to end. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for a reminder, even in something as potentially obscure and confounding as a genealogy, we are grateful this morning for a reminder that you have never abandoned us, that your plan, while at times uh, we admit it it may seem slow to us, that your plan is not thwarted. God, you are ultimately in control. Jesus, we thank you that you are our representative, a faithful representative to the Father, that we are hidden in you, your righteousness, not anything of our own merits or earnings, Jesus. God, we are so grateful for this season in the calendar where you have announced peace to us in the coming of your son. God, would we do whatever it is that we need to do to stop in this season to be intensely grateful. It is unbelievable that it would be so, that we can have peace with you. We know us, we know our track record, we know our flaws, brokennesses, and yet you have drawn near to us. Thank you for that. Thank you that you are with us from beginning to end. Pray that you would give us a great sense of that today as we go. 
And Jesus, thank you for your nearness. We ask all these things in your name, amen. You guys can stand. We're going to continue to sing, respond to God and worship. Uh, I'm also gonna invite our prayer and worship team uh, to the left and to the right of me to come up. Uh, one, uh, uh, I guess a particular invitation. If you find yourself, you know, we're talking about peace today. If you find yourself particularly out of peace in whatever area of your life, if you're asking yourself, God, when will you come and make this right? Uh, then I would invite you to come forward and have a prayer team member pray, lift you up, lift up that concern for you, and we're gonna continue to sing.